Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. I don't even know how to start this one. Hey, everyone. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And we're back for the COVID-19 edition of the AEB Testing Podcast. Does it have a number? Maybe we should change the episode to uh, COVID-19 and not the 111 or 117. Perhaps. 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 So, as you may guess, and you can never get the compressed uh, computer audio to sound quite as good as live, but... Uh, Brent and I are not in the same room. We are not. We I'm are. At, I'm in Brent's basement. He doesn't know it yet. <laughs> Wait, do you have a basement? I do not. But I'm if not you in were Brent's in basement. It, if you were, uh, just be clear, if you were in my basement, I would know. Your family wouldn't, but I would. <laughs> that sounds very, very <laughs> creepy. So, uh, interesting times, huh? Yeah. Uh, it's it's fun being in Washington State right now, huh? Although I guess it doesn't it doesn't mean much to you, I would imagine. No, I've uh, I think as I've maybe I mentioned on the on the podcast before, I work from home quite a bit these days, so it didn't change much for me. What has changed, and maybe we should do a bit of a segment and talk on the impact this has had on us and our jobs and in tech in general. All of my colleagues are now working from home as well. We have, uh, of course, uh, Washington is everyone absolutely works from home. At most of our other sites, I don't say highly recommended. People are expected to work from home, but but if they need to come in, that's they can. But in in Seattle, it's no stay home. Do not come to the office. Well, yeah, it's still only recommended, but that's that's a hundred percent true. It, it's sort of a Super strong recommendation. I was telling somebody that, uh, let me just actually walk through from some experiences on my end. Then I'll ask how you're doing, how you're coping with it. I found it more difficult to work from home at Microsoft. It could have been the teams I was on. I think actually it varies from team to team and how they work. Or maybe that statement's wrong and I evolved into learning it once I began managing a globally distributed team. When uh, you know, I was taking care of my dad a few years ago and I worked from home for two weeks while he stayed with me and hardly anybody even knew I wasn't in the office. Still effectively managed my team and, and got a lot of stuff done. Uh, so then when I moved into my current role about 10 months ago, believe it or not, I began working from home more and more into the stage where I was working from home three to four days a week. And then so we decided to, we should all work from home full time it really was no change for me. Um, somehow I've learned, and we can reflect on the things that have helped me be productive and, and be a regular worker at home, sort of my evolution of becoming a work-from-home person. With all that background set up, uh, what's it been like for you the last couple of days, weeks? How long have you been working from home? Uh, it's now officially one week, and I will tell you, uh, except for being able to wear my pajamas all day long, I find it mostly a downside. So I'm still in the, what is it, the learning, storming, you know, the the old cliche manager speech about team forming. I've not mastered it. It, it, It's a a change that I'm finding more irritating than not. You have to cope, obviously. The next hit that that just landed, as as you know, uh, our governor has closed all schools in uh, three major counties in Washington yep. State. My kids, my kids just began the first day of their six-week spring break. Uh, so Issaquah is just closing. Yes. Yeah. So I'm in the North Shore School District, uh, and not only that, I'm in the Snohomish County. North Shore School District is is going online. So my my son has been home for a week already. Uh, his school's fully online. Yeah, uh, I think that's because, is that because one of the earlier cases hit up there and they had time to plan for that? Uh, actually, the first case, or the earlier cases were, was a retirement home that was literally two miles away from my last house. 
Um, but that's still in King County. It's it's in Kirkland. For th- for those of you, uh, quick geography lesson. States in the U.S. are broken into counties, and Snohomish County is the county one county north of King County. King County is where Seattle and Bellevue and Red Bend and all the – it's probably the definitely the largest populated county in uh, Washington, and Snohomish is just a few miles north. There we go. Back to our regularly scheduled Brent. So my daughter starts online on Monday. They don't – she goes to private school, so she – they don't have sort of the the infrastructure say that the, my son who goes to high school has but like i said we'll cope i had a she's 10 years old i had sat down with her i don't know i don't know what you're doing with your family um, i'll tell you in a minute yeah. go on so my oldest that's still at home is is 18 and i just kind of just bear with it until i can kick him out of the house my daughter, though, she's only 10, and she's a bit confused, and so I'm trying to keep things as normal as possible for her. I told her last night, today is officially a, a day off for her, but then this new paradigm starts on Monday, and I'm like, yep, uh, we'll talk about it over the weekend, but you'll still have much of the same uh, discipline requirements as if you were to school. I'm going to get her up roughly the same time, probably not exactly the same time, but roughly the same time and, and try to do some structure so that she still has that. And then I have to figure out, right? The next thing to go is, is that I'm worried about is what happens if Comcast goes down, right? Or if Amazon stops delivering, right? We have real, real potential catastrophes that could happen. Well, so grocery stores are still open. I've, I've visited several times myself. Yep, I went yesterday. Put my hazmat suit on. Went out. No, I just, I just washed my hands before and after I left. Yeah, I've learned, I've learned recently how to make your own hand sanitizer. Turns out it's super easy. Yeah, I, I did too. So what you do is you buy a jar of aloe vera. Yep. And then get a bottle of vodka and then drink the vodka until you don't care anymore. Oh, you know what? That's a, that's a, that's a good modification. It's, it's something like that. I, I, I think I read that somewhere. Uh, it's again, that's, I think that's a vastly superior modification. And, and well, but for those who, who just want to go with the standard way of making it, you do need a, you get a jar of aloe vera gel, um, you mix it with rubbing alcohol. Uh, the internets will tell you the exact proportions. And if you have, if you're into aromatherapy and you have uh, those, uh, the, what they call essential oils, you can flop in a couple drops of that and then uh, make it a scented uh, hand sanitizer. Beautiful. You know, I hadn't looked up recipes, but I have to tell you, I was at the grocery store yesterday, as mentioned a moment ago. And you know they have those little those stands of things they put up near the register for the impulse buy. Yeah, they had a whole stand of Everclear. So my my only thought was that people were making sand sand sanitizer hand sanitizer out of it. So is it, do you, do you know that recipe? No, but I bet you that would work. What's the percentage of Everclear? So it's like a hundred and eighty proof. Oh, it's ridiculous. I don't know if you can see my screen. No, um, I cannot see your screen. Why shouldn't you use Everclear to make hand sanitizer? <laughs> is a website. Uh, hand sanitizer selling out of the stores, but doc- doctors say you're better off washing your hands. All right, there you go, folks. Yes, that's what I do. We wash our hands. Our soap, our soap dispensers are full. So let me. I don't know if you're done, but I'm gonna go ahead and talk about. I mean, it's tougher with a ten year old. Luckily, my kids are both teenagers. Uh, we talked a little bit about expectations last night. Uh, and this is actually going to go into a topic that, that you will have some input on. I just mentioned the things we agreed on. We haven't figured out a schedule yet. Uh, I do believe that teenagers work better on a cycle where they get up a little bit later. So I will let them sleep in a little, not until noon, but I'm fine with tennis. But they know they have expectations of getting their chores done every day. And they, and they know they may have a few extra. 
They have expectations of doing something because they're not, they're out of school completely. So there's expectations around doing something with their brain. So expectations of reading a book. Uh, my son is working on a game in Python. Uh, he can, I told him, until you've been ready to throw your computer out the window, you're not a real programmer. So keep going. <laughs> and. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I, and my daughter is taking uh, an art history class on Khan Academy for um, for AP credit at school. She's going to continue that and finish that. Uh, but just making sure they have some intellectual things and then just uh, getting outside, keeping a d- distance from people, of course, because who knows which ones are going to be zombies, but uh, just not being in the house all day. And we'll figure out the, the actual uh, percentages later, but as as this these next weeks evolve but uh something i did when they were much younger which i haven't done in a while and i know you've done successfully in the past is i'm thinking about setting up a kanban board for this with swim lanes for brain chores and uh health yeah and making sure making sure that they they get a certain number of story points done per day in each each column and you know, we can visualize our work I want to keep them from just kind of vegging out all day, which would be a really easy thing for me to let them do. But I'm still in my office working 40 hours a week on phone calls, on Zoom calls like this one for about 30 of those. So I need to count on them to be uh, self-sufficient in getting their crap done without me nagging them. Yeah, it's 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 a hassle. It's around creating that structure. And, and right now, I'm working as well from home, uh, there's, there's one thing I've discovered that, uh, the meeting behavior has changed. Oh, that's interesting because I, I do so many remote meetings that I haven't really seen that. Uh, but, and I don't know if I told you this, I, I have a growing team now, uh, after not having one for a while, but I still don't have any direct reports in within 700 miles of me closest I have are San Francisco. So I'm curious to tell me a little bit more about the, uh, what has changed the meetings for you. We now have a whole bunch of people, uh, that, uh, have shifted over untrained to full-time working from home. And the, the first thing I've noticed is as everyone complains, is the hallway chatter, uh, has stopped. Yes. Right. The yeah. there's the, you have to find a place to replicate the water cooler conversation. Yeah, you do. And what people what people they what I'm finding is that they are in fact doing that. Uh, but what they're doing instead of you know asking their their three minute question and going away, what they're doing is they're setting up a half hour meeting. Uh, we covered their three minute question. And then it's, uh, I forget the name of the principal. It's an old management principal, one that I have observed a million times. And that is work expands to fit available time. That's Parkinson's law. I spend three minutes on the P0. And then I, I attempt to do some passive aggressive, hey, so anything else? And but then they go, well, since I have you on the phone, can I go through all of my P P one to P two hundred and fifty items with you? One of the things that's helped out a lot in our transition, and maybe and I could be reading this wrong, but the autonomy. Most of our employees, uh, and I mostly have more senior employees, they're very autonomous. They figure out what to do on their own and they do it. They they we I count on them to do their own prioritization almost all of the time. Um, however, a couple anecdotes to throw at you. Uh, one is a couple of my teams have set up um, just a morning coffee meeting, 15-minute Zoom meeting, no work talk, just you know, drinking some coffee, asking you know how things are going, what's new with them, and that's helped them stay connected. But but more interesting is I don't know if you fall on the the more introverted or more extroverted uh, tendencies. Uh, you absolutely do know that we're both INTP. Are we both INTP? We are. It's a spectrum, uh, the introversion part. I 
like working from home. I don't I don't miss seeing people in person. Some people are really motivated by that. And I've I've never really noticed the impact of that. Everyone's working from home. I have some employees who are very introverted and after a couple days to a week of working from home, they're telling me, I don't think I ever want to work in an office again. And there's some people that have been home for a day or two and thought and are thinking, I can't stand this. I'm going to die. So just be being able to, as a manager, being able to figure out which employees are which and kind of give them what they need, give them some more if they need if they need to be if they need people, give them more opportunities to virtually connect with people. Do a water cooler. I know some people are doing an open Zoom meeting during the day. They just kind of keep Zoom open. People can drop in and say hi in a Zoom meeting whenever they want. Uh, you need to adapt. I think it's going to be interesting. There's been a culture of work from home for a lot of people. We see them on Twitter all the time, at least. And a whole bunch of people who are going to now have to learn it. I think a lot of advancements are going to be made. So I'm pretty excited about that. And yeah. Yeah. So you're going to say? No, it's like my my team in particular is mostly introverts, right? Um, our usual daily stand-up has changed from being around 15 minutes to consistently a half hour. Right. Uh, and I think it's, it's roughly that, that personal check-in that, that you just referred to. The, 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 the behavior that I've seen is, is again, my personal autonomy feels like it has gone way down. I am much more beholden to my meeting schedule than than honestly ever before, uh, and and that may be that may be what is driving me personally crazy. There there is a there is a phrase I use a lot, uh, and it's relevant in this case, and that is too much talky, not enough doy. And that's what I that's how I feel this this last week. I wonder if you'll find underlying. In fact, I would expect that you would find underlying ways of working or principles that uh, were actually affecting you before the way you work on your teams or the way I should say the way we work in general on our teams in the industry that will only be highlighted now that everyone's working remotely. I think we may I think we may discover some new inefficiencies as well as some new accelerants in how we work. So interesting. So it's like uh, it's like drinking. Right. The, the more you the more you drink, uh, different people become different people. I think I can find a better way to put that. People are in a different situation. Uh, they're going to learn some new ways of doing things. And some of those new things are going to be things they should continue when they go back to their old way or their old situation or environment. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I, I have spent a lot of time just in the last week going Hmm. I wonder what new patterns are going to pop up. Exactly. And that's what I think we need to pay attention to and highlight. I think on, on my teams, I actually have a, a hunch that our work will accelerate as people, it'll be a little slower at first and then we're going to end up getting faster and, uh, We'll see how well that works out, but I'm hoping that's true. And I'm also hoping when we go back to working in the office, we can take some of those things that have made us work better and keep doing those, even though we're back in the old environment. Well, yeah, if you can identify it as, as the cause and then call it out explicitly, like in a retrospective. Yeah. And I think one of the things we can do as leaders in the software industry on our teams, as we're going through this is look for the patterns, look at what's working, look, look, what's not working. We do these same things in retros. Now we can look at it a little bit. We want to look at it through the lens of everybody working from home. Yeah. So do you, do you recall um, feeling anything along the lines of 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 what I'm doing now, uh, the the sense of emotion, the sense of adapting, the sense of struggling through it. Did you have any of that experience? Because uh, I'm guessing not, because you made an explicit decision. Yeah, it was also very gradual. I would work from home a day a week, maybe before I made. Before I moved to this new role, the impetus for me working from home not wasn't me deciding I wanted to work from home. I would have 
so many early morning meetings trying to talk to teams in Europe that it would be noon and I go, well, shoot, it's noon already. I've been in meetings since six. I'm not going into work today. So that was really, and then that happened more and more often. And finally I decided, Hey, I don't have any meetings in the office. Why am I going to the office at all? I am, I could be productive during that commute time. So one of the things that worked for me was being very gradual. It was a gradual change. I think for most people, the change has not been gradual. It has been, I'm in the office every day, seeing my friends, having snacks, eating food, and now I'm home and I have to make my own lunch. Yeah. My wife and I have a standing uh, lunch schedule on Tuesdays. And one of my favorite sushi places, sorry, in the world is just down the street from my house. And I was, oh, hey, no commute for either of us. Hey, let's go to Oceano. And it's interesting. She's like, no, we're just going to have sandwiches here at home. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's some impact. There's another one that I've noticed with myself, and I'm wondering how, how, how you deal with this, since on this call, you are definitely the working-from-home expert. So I've noticed, I, I never had noticed this before, but now it is just super clear and straight in my face, the importance of the commute for me personally to to transition uh, into modes, and what I mean is sort of home. Nope, I get it completely. I I, I understand oh. what you mean. In fact, one time, uh, when the time before I just moved twelve years ago, we looked at a house. And we made an offer on a house that was walking distance to Microsoft, and one of the reasons we kind of backed out of the deal. Uh, was that I wasn't sure what I was going to do without a commute time because that, that transition both to and from can really help and you get used to it. Yeah. I think still having a ritual in the morning, uh, a, 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 a pattern helps. It helps my dog. My dog knows exactly what goes on in the morning. So here's my day. I get up always a half hour before my first meeting. Why may you ask? Because I need that time to, in that half hour, I can take a shower. Because normally I have my camera on. I did not take a shower this morning for you. But I get up, I take a shower, I go downstairs, I feed the dog, I take the dog outside, I come back in, I get a big glass of water, I get a cup of coffee, and I make sure that I've rehydrated and had a little bit of caffeine before I begin the day. So I need that half hour. Otherwise, I can't, I'm not a full participant in that first meeting. Now, I'm not saying you have to start your meetings at six, but that that routine is my commute. I use that okay. half hour where you could say you're driving for a half hour. My half hour is me transitioning from my bed to going to work. So that okay. that works out. So you need some sort of routine to replace the old routine. The other part is how do I transition out? Now, yeah. I used to end my day... Late afternoon, I would run to the gym. I just decided a couple days ago that I'm not going to go to the gym anymore until things settle down. It's a gross, slimy place. And I, I'm probably that's probably too too much, but oh well. But uh, the weather's getting a little bit better, cool but clear, not as freezing outside. So these last couple days, what I try and do at the end of the day when I'm done for the day is I go for a walk, and that's where I catch up on the other thing missing from my commute, which is listening to podcasts. Since I, when I commute in the car, I listen to podcasts. That's how I stay caught up in all my podcasts I listen to. I still need time to do that. End of the day, take the dog, go for a walk, a uh, half hour, listen to a podcast, come back, wash my hands. And, <laughs> and uh, that's my commute home. And that's just my ritual, but I think the main tip there is have a ritual, have something you do in the morning uh, on accounts as your commute to work and something accounts as your commute away from work. And it's going to be different for everyone, but I don't think the point is to copy mine, but the point is to have one, have some sort of thing that transitions you into the workday. Yeah, actually the, the workday transition for me is not the one I struggle with the most. It's the end of workday. Uh, for example, 
this whole week, and I don't know how long I'll continue to do this, this whole week, uh, what is common for me is when it's when it's in, near the end of my day, I will text my wife and let her know, hey, my, uh, I'll be leaving soon. And then when I'm actually starting the car and coming home, um, I'll text her saying I'm leaving. And I've been, I've been doing that every day this last week, uh, just because it's funny. Because I'll text her and then, right, I'll text her, hey, I'm leaving work. And, and then, then go, hey, honey, I'm home. Uh, obviously, that's not enough time uh, to sort of drain all of the, the, the hot work stuff that was in your head just before you left and into shifting the mode. I'm, I'm, so I think, I think it's something smart there that, that you, you sort of shut down work. Uh, in other words, your commute time is part of your work day and you need to account for it, not ignore it. Make it, uh, when you're transitioning to this, find a, a, a useful, similar period of time, replace it with something that is not work. Yes, exactly it. Yes, I fully agree. I don't have a dog. It's okay, you have legs, you can still go for a walk. Read a book, watch a TV show, do something, and be, get, get out of work mode. But one thing to bring up is for me, because I sometimes I will take a break in the middle of the day to go see what the kids are doing, or in fact, it's good. In fact, sitting at your, just because you're home, you don't, probably don't walk around your house as much as you may walk around the office doing things. So it's still good to get out of your seat and, and get out of the, the cave that is your office once in a while. Yeah, do something. Sure. What I've been doing on that front is, and I don't know, I have to think of this, if I think this is good or bad, but it it's right now making me happy. As you know, um, Microsoft is leveraging Microsoft Teams for most of its working from home adventures. And there is a desktop uh, version and a mobile version. So those meetings where they're, not all of them, but I would say maybe one in three, where I know it's it's mostly talking. If I say anything at all, it's talking. I'm, I'm not going to be presenting. Uh, no one's going to be asking me to do a, an on-the-spot analysis, right? So I don't, don't need to be right on my computer. I'll just take the meeting outside, uh, get up, take a break. Go outside. It's, if it's raining, I'll sit underneath my patio. If it's not, then I'm just sort of wandering aimlessly around the. Hey, I want to throw out one last tip, then a transitory statement, and then a new topic. So my tip is: if it, can I remember three things? It's the big challenge here. Here, take bets now. The tip is uh, for people doing one-on-ones for the first time remotely. I've done one-on-ones remotely for the last coming up on three years. A ton of them every week. It's really easy to get at a computer like, oh, they're talking. I'm, they're telling me stuff maybe I knew. I'm going to peek over at Slack or Reddit or email or whatever. One tip I do is when I'm in one-on-ones, I always sit with my arms either folded or behind my head, and those are in the view of the camera. It's kind of maybe maybe it's weird, maybe nobody notices, but it's my way of showing that I'm actually paying attention because my, my fingers aren't on the keyboard. It also happens that I have a uh, uh, mechanical keyboard so they can hear if I'm typing. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> um, so I will first praise you um, because I too am one with mechanical keyboards. For me, it's more defensive. So years ago in my career, I had an ergonomics team and I was forming carpal tunnel and it was discovered that the membrane keyboards is what was causing it. Because instinctively, if if the keyboard doesn't make a noise, I was pounding it with my fingers to to make it make the mechanical keyboard noise. But yeah, uh, one-on-ones, I'm not having as much of a problem. I'm actually finding... In some regards, I think I'm doing a better job as a manager with working from home with one-on-ones. What what I've shifted it to is 
lot more of having them do screen shares and and uh, asking them questions about their work and and uh, so it's rather easy. So at home or at work, what I would do is that they had something and then uh, like an insight or uh, what's common with uh, with employees. I'm really good at connecting dots and putting putting the pattern together. And my team has learned that. And so what they'll do is they'll come and they'll show me some random spreadsheet or something. And they'll say, okay, do you see anything here? And I'll just start clicking away. And one of the things that I that I have done that I think is effective is while it's rather easy to ask for permission uh, to manipulate uh, the screen on their side, don't. But I, I'm finding that I'm using, uh, as I tell my children, I'm using my words more to be clear around. Uh, those specific, you know, hey, click this, scroll up. And then that does transform into more of a coaching learning experience. All right. I'm going to have you put a pin in coaching. We're going to come back to that. But I did want to make one call out the transitory statement from my three things earlier. And then I want to talk more about coaching in the context of quality coaching. So the one call out I want to make is to Ministry of Test. They, I think they're a fantastic organization I would say that even if there wasn't a modern testing course on their website, they have had to cancel their second test bash. They canceled test bash uh, in Detroit and they just canceled test bash in Brighton because it's the right thing to do. Uh, Very mature. I'm glad they did it. But uh, one way to support what I would love to see them do is do uh, some, do an, do an online conference. And I know Joel's is free, but I wonder if they did a, uh, I just retweeted Rosie this morning who said the best way to support Ministry of Test right now is to get a pro membership. And again, the pro memberships are so much value there, even if you don't like modern testing. Uh, there's other courses on there. You get so much content. Uh, I'm hoping they do something like a pro a pro only webinar or pro only conference or pro only webinars or something. I hope they can find a way to, I think it'd be a, a fair way for them to try and keep some revenue coming in during this time when they don't have those conferences or find a way to do virtual meetups. Um, just keep people connected. So big fans, uh, if you're listening from ministry of test, let us know how we can help. Uh, if there's anything we can do, but it's going to be interesting economic times for everyone going forward. So I want to just give them a call out and just please give them your support. So quick comment. And then we're going to go on the test coaching. Sure. I had not realized that's what was occurring. I, I do imagine that these conferences are a large source of their income, right? The, the ability to do the conferences, um, right? Joel's, well, the OTC is is online and free. Obviously, MOT could, could reach out to Joel and figure out some of those things, but in terms of it being an income source, yeah, I'm not, not at all certain. I do think MOT is one of the, one of the better sources of modernized thought processes uh, on on this context. And I would very much like to see them, first off, survive this. Second off, I I still see them uh, as a a leader of the next next sort of stage for um, individuals in the quality space. And and, uh, I think it's somewhat saddening if, if they don't bounce back quickly and adapt. Yeah, don't make it sound like the end of the world for them. I just want to give them, give them a little nudge in the right direction. So, I can hear you typing, man. Yeah, I'm actually going to go sign up for a premium account. Oh, good for you, man. I want to talk about test coaching, something we've brought up here quite a bit. And uh, it's interesting to see there are more and more people like Rob Meany and Marie Charrett and others whose names I've forgotten to mention right now who are doing test coaching and seeing test coaching as something that is a natural evolution of the role of the dedicated test specialist, which we talk about a lot in uh, in our podcasts. I probably even mentioned it in 
the Ministry of Test Modern Testing course and in probably the talks I've given on modern testing. I have two people on my team in my org who I consider to be test or quality coaches. So the role is the role is growing. Uh, and then Lisa refers to this uh, Lisa Crispin uh, as more of a test consultant, and I've. It took me a while to take that to heart, but I'm going to ask you a question. What's the difference between a coach and a consultant? Uh, a coach has a vested interest. Uh, no, sorry. If you, I, I guess if you could put it that way. If you think of the external consultant who doesn't care, a lot of consultants do have a vested interest. So I think it's possible for a person, like when I think about what I do, and maybe it depends on my definitions, but I drift frequently between coaching and consulting based on context. With coaching, I want to change a behavior. Uh, coaching is more about asking questions. How do you think that worked? What would you do differently next? When I, when I switch into my consulting hat, uh, it's more of ed, more direct advice. I'm, I'm sol- helping them solve a technical problem or, or or I'm helping them solve a problem versus helping them solve the problem themselves. It's subtle, but it's different. So let me let me let me offer a a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift in the middle of our podcast? Geez, go for it. Well, yeah, it's not a tangent. It's a paradigm shift. Blah blah. Go ahead. All right. My son plays baseball. Noted. Uh, you big fan of soccer. Me, big fan of uh, NFL. These three different spaces all have coaches and all have consultants. So what I do is I, I when you ask that question, I go, okay, let's shift it to the most commonplace uh, thing in my mind of where coaches and consultants exist. And what is their their clear roles? Right. And then then after sort of working through that, let's map it back to the, the space where Alan asked and see if it fits. Right. For me, um, uh, I'm very tight with my my son's baseball coach. Um, he's he's paid, uh, but that spirit of payment, like that fiscal responsibility mostly around survivability as you know um, from from daniel pink's studies um finances is a motivator but it's it's absolutely one of the weaker ones social motivation is significantly stronger and he takes accountability but uh it's not it's not accountability in terms of who to blame but accountability for who feels responsible who's who's going to spend the time and dedication to make it happen. Whereas a consultant, I, I kind of view a consultant as, oh, yeah, here's some advice. Right? Um, it sort of take what you want from a consultant, throw away the rest. Uh, the consultant doesn't have a horse in the race. That's 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 the difference in my mind. Well, I, I think you're thinking of bringing in the consultant from the agency. I think there's an activity of consulting that consultants do. And this, is, this is sounding very much like not me talking. But when I'm the way I think of it is I'm when I'm coaching, I'm helping people get through you know habit changes, changing their beliefs, changing their outcomes, or figuring out what's in the way of them getting the results they want. Uh, so coaching is a lot of times you know therapist a little bit. Whereas in my consulting hat, there's a skill gap I'm addressing. So is it a skill they're missing? I need to help them with, which I do a lot with test coaching. In consulting, I may say, oh, you should look at, there's a, there's a Python library that'll help here. Go look it up and run it. That's consulting. Coaching is, what have you tried? It's more of the thing you do. When I do one-on-ones, I'm coaching. When I'm meeting with the team to talk about why their velocity or quality are, aren't where they want them to be. I'm probably doing more consulting in that meeting. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe I'm putting too much effort into breaking it down. And I know there is a little bit of stigma from some people, including especially you in this case, that a consultant is this uh, pointy haired guy that comes in and tells you what to do and takes a crap on your stuff. Oh, no, no, no. So consultants are fine in that 
in that case. I'm not certain why you you phrase it that way. I do. Uh, uh, well, I, I think I you said they're not have, vested, which I, which I read as they don't. The consultants don't care. Uh, well, but then so I would say the consultants don't have a vested interest in you following their guidance. Okay. That, so, uh, but, and when I say don't care, I don't mean that. So there's an aspect of apathy. I agree. But there is also an aspect of objectivity that I think consultants bring in that, that, thing you accuse me of, of, hey, you hate consultants because they don't care. No, that's not necessarily a negative thing. I'm just trying to differentiate it. Okay. Right? Apathy. Let's, um, this has been a little bit of a tangent. I'm going to loop us back in. So I'm going to ask you a different question. Is it about test, two... testing versus checking? No, it's about my butt. <laughs> the question is, do you have a definition of a test coach? And then question two is, do you think test coaching is a natural evolution in testing? Will we see? Will we continue to see more and more testers become test coaches? Um. And if so, I can go backward. And if so, what does a test coach do? So, I do, uh, and I'm pretty certain you do too. Uh, on on, do we see more and more of this occurring? Right. Yes, we do. Now, just as a reminder, there's this thing that uh, me and this other person worked on called the modern testing principles. And principle number four calls that out. Right. Uh, we care deeply about we coach and nurture our teams. Yes. Right. So obviously we believe it and we're seeing it happen. It would have happened. And again, the thing to come back to the principles is we weren't trying to dictate some brand new thing people wanted to aspire to. We've just been documenting what we've been seeing happening in the industry for years now. Yeah, and it's ha- now it's it's snowballing a little bit. It's happening more and more. Do, do I see the quality coach position uh, improving or, or growing? Yeah, absolutely. Do I see uh, it be the place that that sort of uh, saves the the test community? No, 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 I don't. And I think there's a lot of variation too in what test coaches do. So, uh, can you sum up like what are the main? What do you think are the main duties? The main activities of a test coach? Um, you know what? I think you should do that. I'm a data scientist. I never shifted to the test test coach role. So I think okay. everything I would be doing would be hypothetical. I'll dive in because I was just going to correct you anyway. Oh, gotcha. No, I was curious in your opinion. So I'll do mine. You can give me your thoughts on this. So I think a lot of test coaches, well, if you even go back to Elizabeth Hendrickson's Explore It book, I don't know if she called it coaching in that book, but she talked about teaching developers how to do exploratory testing. And I've done plenty of that. And that's part of it. Uh, but what you're really doing at a meta level is giving developers more ideas on how to test. And that's what a test coach does. And I mentioned this before on the podcast. When my boss asks me how well our team is doing at testing, I honestly can give them the same answer every time. And this is the first place you want to get. Our developers do all the testing they know how to do, which is good because they're not expecting anyone else to do their testing for them. But it's also accurate in that that statement implies that there is more testing they could do. They just don't know how to do it yet. That's why I have me and test coaches. We don't call them that. That's not their only job. They help the teams understand what testing may be missing. They help the team understand what quality processes they may need to improve. If you go to principle five, is principle five our quality culture one? Whatever principle is the quality culture one. Four. Four. It's also four. Excellent. Oh, perfect. Four is the coaching principle. So they're helping teams look. uh, They're often running retros for the team. In fact, very often in my org, running retros for the team, not their typical uh, sprint retro, but retros on incidents or retros on issues affecting quality and velocity, which are my two main priorities, and helping the team learn how to understand where they need to improve using the quality culture transition guide 
as a model to discover new areas they may want to get better in. So to me, that's what quality coaching is. It's helping the team understand more ways of doing testing and helping the team improve their quality culture, their approaches that help them make quality software in the first place. So they're they're um, <clears throat> accelerating the achievement of shippable quality on their teams. I guess you could have a test coach for a small team and you could say like on an agile team, the one tester on a team of seven or so is the quality coach. I think that works. In my case, my quality coach is doing it for much larger chunks of people, multiple teams. How's that? What do you want to add or detract or no, I, dig I, in on there? I love that a great deal. Aww, the, I'm blushing. The, and obviously, uh, so one one of our listeners asked, hey, do, what do we see on this front? How do we see it? its relation to modern testing uh, principles? And we see something that's very aligned, very strong. It's unsurprising. Yeah. They also asked around quality engineering. And right now I'm, I'm on Google trying to disprove the hypothesis that quality engineering is just a rebrand of auto, uh, uh, software automation uh, engineers. I, I don't even know. I don't want to figure it out. And I'm actually kind of surprised you're using Google and not Bing. Uh, Aren't you required by law to use Bing? Because no. Bing can Google stuff. No, that was under the Obama era. See uh, episode two or three ago. I have used nothing but DuckDuckGo for the last uh, few months, and I'm I'm not unhappy. DuckDuckGo. Really? It's the first time you've heard of this? Yeah, you crazy kids and your newfangled thingies. It's an ad-free search engine. Oh, yeah. You actually, you have talked about this before. I, I don't know if I have or not, but I got yeah. I got sick and tired of it. Got to the point where Google's showing a full page of promoted links before you can get to actual actual links you care about. I just can't handle it. Yeah, it's interesting because I just sort of block it out. Anyway, so quality engineering, we don't know right now. To me, it just seems like automation engineer rebranded. The uh, the term I'm encouraging folks to actively pay attention to is observability engineering. I think that one's going to be really keen, really keen skill set for those currently in the test organization to shift into uh, the new, the new forming options. Yeah, that, that could be a whole different podcast episode on observability. There's, but we'll save that. There's one quote here from uh, Mags in the one of the three.slack.com which says the quality coaches we've spoken to have been coaching teams to support them on their path to being able to deliver software faster while reducing unplanned rework. It's been all about delivery rather than testing, which I find, and I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the podcast, but I find that that statement uh, wonderful because when I talk about what I do, my role isn't delivery manager or director of delivery because those would be dumb titles but when i describe what i do it's all things delivery i take care of making sure we can deliver as fast as we can without breaking too much yeah in some regards it's balancing velocity and quality that's that's it's entirely what i care about and this goes back to one last yep. thing that i'll let you jump in and then we'll close is you and i and this is i almost threw this out in i was Someone sucked someone I didn't want into a Twitter conversation, so I ignored it. But I'm realizing more and more that there are luminaries in testing who only care about testing. They don't give a shit about quality. They care about testing. And you and I are the opposite. I really could... could I don't care about testing. I know it needs to happen, and I have ideas on how to do it well, but what I care about is yeah. quality. And I think that's a big difference in the transition from air quote traditional to and actually modern testing has been referred to as the quality school by one of these by by i think i i don't want to quote michael bolton on that but i think it's what he said no i i guess so i don't i don't remember what the schools all are but 
Yeah, we care about quality, not testing. Sue us. There's space for that. It's not a contradiction. It's just as long as people understand the scope of the context when when someone who does care about testing talks about it. I'm I'm all for people having their passion, right? And and there is uh, a large amount of space for people who do care about testing and wanting to improve it. You and I are more system based. We care about quality um, because that's what makes people or society better and happier. Uh, the uh, the you know principle five. We care about essentially we care about the customer's point of view. Um, I think about when we talked about quality coaches. I think about you know the the last type of coach that was super popular and that was the agile coach and their role was around how to take their expertise that they know and help teams achieve their goals but faster right and uh you, your quote from from mags right it's all about delivery rather than testing it's that rather that bothers me in that one i definitely agree it's all about delivery that's a hundred percent true but I think a quality coach is going to be focusing on, um, right? What, what is the customer experience? What does customer telemetry say? What does customer feedback say? As well as um, testing expertise and identifying those bottlenecks in the system due to lack of knowledge in here, I will say the quality space, which will include testing expertise. Yes, I, I'm not saying it's not needed. Uh, I would, however, hypothesize that some of these folks in who are waving their testing flag over test. I think one of the things an agile coach or a quality coach can do is recognize the right amount of testing to do for a given scenario. They're they're good at that risk assessment. They know it's the popcorn popper theory of shipping software. You want to ship software uh, at that Think of microwave popcorn popping in a, in the microwave. There's a sweet spot where you've popped the most popcorn you can without burning any. That's when we ship. Uh, maybe even then, right? Uh, I'm a big believer in it, it's around risk control. Right, so very very small bags of popcorn. If I can, if I can, sh- if I can ship uh, something super small. Uh, and mitigate the risk, like, you know, for example, ship it under feature flag, turn it on for an hour, then turn it off, then I get a lot of solid, a lot more solid information. Of course. uh, Than I do with spending that same hour uh, testing. Now, that doesn't mean I'm not testing as well. What it does mean is I don't I won't spend a lot of time proactively testing the hypo- hypothetical. For sure, for sure. That's exactly it. So uh, we are out of time. We will uh, do some editing and then we'll get this out and then we'll see what the listeners think. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And I'll see you later. See ya. Rock and roll.